0: Well, we've been working through James chapter 1, and in this first chapter, James has been giving general instructions for Christians as they encounter trials of various kinds. He's giving them the wisdom that they need to faithfully endure the hardships that enter into their lives. He wants them to encounter these hardships not as temptations that cause them to turn against God and to run to sinful desires, but instead to encounter them as testings that prove the genuineness of their faith, that result in wholeness and holiness, that bring about spiritual maturity in their lives. James wants Christians to faithfully endure trials. And in fact, he wants to teach us that Christians can faithfully endure trials because they've been born again by the word of truth, the gospel. They're the first fruits of the new creation work that God is accomplishing in Jesus Christ. So not only can we faithfully endure, we must faithfully endure. We must follow after Jesus in faithful endurance. Last week we considered verses 21 through or 19 through 21, where James identified the importance of receiving the word of God. This is important for our faithful endurance. We need to receive the implanted word. And as we receive this word, we participate in the salvation that Jesus is bringing about. The word is able to save you. Now, contrary to some ways of talking about salvation, James teaches us that receiving this word of the gospel is not just a one-time act, but it's an all-of-life practice. It's a lifelong endeavor of receiving the word and responding to it appropriately. So to abandon the word is to take a shortcut that leads us away from the road of discipleship. It leads us away from Christ, so we need to faithfully endure in our reception of the word, but this week, James is going to push us to also faithfully endure in our response to the word, in putting the word into action in our lives. So He does this in three movements. He starts with a prescription or a command to hear the word and to do it. And then he gives a parable that explains the rationale for why we need to do the word. And then he concludes with a promise of blessing on those who do the word. So we're just going to track through these verses, looking at each of those movements, beginning with this prescription to not just be a hearer, but also to be a doer of the word. So verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So here he's making the point that just hearing the word by itself is not admirable. It doesn't really do anything for you. In fact, as you read through the gospel accounts, as Jesus teaches and explains the word, there are many people who give an initial hearing, but then they leave. They walk away. They don't persevere in their hearing, or they never put it into action. So if you read through the gospels, you can think of multiple individuals who come to Jesus, who hear his word of truth, and they go away disappointed because they're not willing to put it into action. There has to be a movement from simply hearing the word to doing it. There has to be a progression from intellectually understanding the word to putting the word into practice in our lives. So the command is simple and straightforward. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James gives this warning about self-deception because as we considered last week with the parable of the soils, an initial hearing of the... The word of God might bring up what pretends to be growth, an initial sprout from the seed, but because it's on rocky ground, it never puts down roots. So you might think that there's life, but actually it doesn't continue on because your heart is rocky soil. So we don't want to deceive ourselves. We don't want to just hear and taste an initial benefit of the word. We need to persevere in it but we need to think more deeply about what James means when he talks about the word. What is the word, and what does it mean to be a doer of the word? So on one level, these are really simple things, but we actually come to find out they're quite deep truths, and they require a lot of reflection. So when you read the instruction to be a doer of the word, you're probably identifying the word as the Bible. So in your head, you're hearing it be a doer of what the Bible says and not a hearer only. And I think that's right, but it takes a little bit of nuance to get to that conclusion. When James is writing this letter, we have to think about how the first readers or the first hearers received this instruction. Likely, James's letter is the very first one in the New Testament. So when we think of the word as the Bible— and we want to think about how James's hearers thought about the word, we need to get rid of the New Testament. We won't do that forever, just as we think about how they understood this. All that they had were Israel's scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, and then they had the oral tradition of Jesus' teaching and the description of his ministry, and they had the authoritative teaching of the apostles. So when these readers or listeners heard this command, What they're hearing is, be a doer of Israel's scriptures. Be a doer of Jesus's teaching and of the teachings of the apostles. Well, ultimately, that comes down to us in the form of the New Testament. But I think sometimes we just say, well, okay, I'll be a doer of the Bible. And we don't really go beyond that. The reality is, when we start reading the Bible, we find that there are many things that we don't do. And that we probably shouldn't do whether it's making sacrifices or following civil law codes in the Old Testament, or perhaps even the greeting of a kiss on your way into the church building, there are things that we just don't do. So how do we reconcile that with the command to not just be a hearer, but also a doer? Well, we need to start by picking up more fully on what James is referring to when he talks about the word. James sheds more light on the identification of the word by paralleling that term in verse 22 with the phrase, the perfect law of freedom in verse 25. The perfect law of freedom and the word refer to the same thing. They're used interchangeably. But even as we hear that, we might start to ask an additional question. Well, if James is talking about the Old Testament, Israel's scriptures, aren't those the exact scriptures that enslaved them and led people to legalism? So why is it that James is taking these things and telling people to do the Old Testament when that's just legalistic? Well, I think that might be James's very point. They need to receive the Word and reflect on how to interpret it in light of the teaching and actions of Jesus. They need to embrace Jesus' ongoing teaching as the Word made flesh, as the fulfillment of the Word. James is not denigrating the Old Testament, neither did Jesus. Neither of them are calling us to ignore it, but they're calling us to rightly understand it in light of Jesus, in light of the one who made it perfect, who made it not just a law, but a perfect law of freedom. See, Jesus did not treat the law as an enemy to be defeated, Instead, he saw the law as a mechanism that provided a journey towards the righteousness in the kingdom of God, but ultimately no one could make that journey on their own. Jesus did make that journey. In that coming, he fulfilled the law. He brought it to its desired end, and in so doing, he transformed it from something that leads us into the righteousness of God to something that brought God's righteousness to us in his perfect fulfillment of the law. So in that way, Jesus is the ultimate doer because he brought it to its completion and he paved the way for us to follow in his steps. So in other words, they were not to hear their scriptures as they had prior to Jesus' interpretation and fulfillment of them. Instead, they were to read them through the lens of Jesus and his redemptive work and his teaching. I think this is exactly what James is getting at. He is saying... Essentially, we need to ask, how did Jesus fundamentally interpret and apply the scriptures? And we need to embrace that interpretation and take on that application in our daily life. This is what James is getting at in chapter 2, when he uses another synonym for the word or the perfect law of freedom, where in verse 8, he talks about fulfilling the royal law prescribed in the scripture, which is fundamentally to love your neighbor as yourself. So all that James is doing is saying, I am going to grab onto the most important interpretive lens for Israel's scripture that was provided by Jesus and dictate the rest of our interpretation and living out or embodiment of scripture in light of that interpretive lens. And that interpretive principle is the principle of love. This is what Jesus taught when he told his disciples that the whole of the law hangs on this, love of God and love of neighbor. This is what the Apostle Paul communicates in Galatians when he writes that we ought to serve one another through love, for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. And this is what the Apostle John adds in his first letter when he writes, "'Little children, let us not love in word or in speech, but in action and in truth.'" The whole of the New Testament teaches us that doing the word is fundamentally a matter of demonstrating love to one another. So when we hear hear the prescription, to not only hear the word but to do it, ultimately it's a call to respond to the word of truth in love for God and in love for one another. So we do the word primarily by demonstrating love we need to be careful to avoid constructing an image of what it means to love based on cultural norms or societal practices. Instead, we need to define our actions of love by looking to the example of our Lord in the teaching of the apostles. Now, we could take this many, many directions, but James later, in a couple weeks, will consider this. James points out that these Christians have identified what it means to love improperly and they distort it by showing favoritism to rich people and not showing kindness to poor people. Because society norms, in their society was show preference for the rich. Well, they're saying we're working out the command to love, but they've actually distorted it into partiality. And there are endless ways that we can distort the biblical imperatives to love, so we need to carefully identify what it means to love based on the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. But fundamentally, doing the word is a matter of love. We need to go a little bit deeper, though, because if we're instructed to do the word and we recognize that there are practices in the New Testament and the Old Testament that we simply don't do, we have to wrestle with interpreting the word. We're just confronted with the necessity of interpretation. So whenever we read the Bible, we're interpreting it. Whenever we apply, The Bible, we're interpreting it. There is no such thing as a plain reading of the text, we might say, to where we just read it and um, we just know what it means. We're so objective that we're not bringing anything to the text to misunderstand it. Unfortunately, I think that's the way that many of us tend to read the Bible. We just read it, we think this is what it means to me, and so then I'll apply it in whatever way I see fit. Well, the reality is that every time we approach the scriptures, we have to interpret it, and we can't interpret it in isolation. So I want to give us three guiding principles for interpreting the word because there's that bridge of interpretation that moves us from hearers to doers, the bridge of understanding that's required. I want to give you three guidelines for interpretation as you read the Bible that might help you become not just a hearer, but a hearer who understands, and then a hearer who does. When we talk about guidelines for interpretation, we're talking about something called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is just a word for the art and science of interpretation. And that's a study that we have to get into. We have to think about these things. We do Bible classes on this. Interpretation is really, really important. Uh, so these three points are not all that there is to say about biblical interpretation, but they perhaps are the most important points when it comes to interpretation. We need to adopt a hermeneutic or a way of reading the Bible that is first of all Christological. That is to say, Christ is at the center of our reading. He is the lens through which we read the rest of the scriptures. This is what Jesus was teaching his disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection when he opened the the scriptures to them which is what we call the Old Testament, and showed them everything in it that taught of him. We read the Old Testament in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. We also read the New Testament in light of who Jesus is and what he's done, because it fundamentally is a witness to Christ. So our reading of the text needs to be read in light of Christ, in light of his fulfillment of the Old Testament in light of his own teaching, and in light of his action and behavior. We should not interpret texts in a way that would lead us to act in a way that Jesus would never act. So sometimes this happens. We interpret texts to defend our way of being in the world when Jesus himself would never operate in the world that way. While a Christological reading of Scripture will help guard against that. Second, we need to read Scripture charitably. So, if we have a Christological lens, we need to have a charity lens that prizes love as the outcome. So, love, as we've already seen, is what the whole of the scriptures hangs on love for God and love for others. And by loving God and loving others, we fulfill or we do the whole of the scriptures. So, as we interpret the scripture, we need to weigh our interpretation against this guideline. Will it lead? to greater love for God and for others. We're helped by the ancient theologian Augustine who wrote this, whoever then thinks that he understands the Holy Scriptures or any part of them, but puts such an interpretation upon them as does not tend to build up this twofold love of God and our neighbor, he does not yet understand them as he ought. So what Augustine is saying is if the way you're interpreting the Bible does not lead you to love God and to love others. You don't understand the scriptures as you ought to. You've applied a hermeneutic or an interpretive grid that is unhelpful and inappropriate. So we need a Christological guideline. We also need this guideline of charity or love. What we might call a hermeneutic of love as we read the scriptures. Then third, I would suggest that we need a communal guideline in our interpretation. We need to read the scriptures in a way that privileges community involvement. Now I need to defend this a little bit because this is the opposite of the way most of us read and engage with the Bible. If you think about it, from the very beginning of the reality of the scriptures, the scriptures have always been a communal thing. They've always been read and interpreted and applied in the context of a Christian community. Even the way that reading practices took shape in the early church and before that in the Israelite community privileged the community setting for engagement with the scriptures. So it's helpful that this morning we read from Acts where the Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah. Well, how is he reading it? He's reading it aloud. Well, that was a general reading practice of God followers from the beginning of time is to read the scriptures aloud with other people. Now, part of this was just because Bibles weren't available. No one had a Bible on their shelf at home. So the ownership of the scripture was even communal. You didn't have private ownership of the scripture. But the other reality is that there's a privileging of the community both in interpreting the scripture and applying it. None of us ought to be individual interpreters of the Bible. And none of us ought to try to put the Bible into action in isolation from a community of faith. We wouldn't have the scriptures apart from the community of faith. Start reading the letters of the New Testament, and it's going to be the churches or to groups of people in particular places. Very rarely is it to one person, and when it is, it's to a leader of a community of churches. The very nature of the scriptures are communal. the theologian Kevin Van Hooser, in his book Hearing and Doing, or Hearers and Doers, which I would recommend if you're interested in thinking about not just being a hearer, but also a doer. In his book on reading the scripture and becoming a disciple of Christ, he warns against confusing a couple of things. First, he warns against confusing sola scriptura, the idea that the scripture is authoritative for our life and practice, with solo scriptura, which is your authoritative interpretation of scripture. So we ought not confuse the authority of scripture with our interpretation of scripture. One of the ways that we tend to start to do that is when we read the scripture in isolation from the church at large, and we start to privilege our interpretation as the only valid interpretation, and we move from sola scriptura to solo scriptura making our interpretation authoritative, even more authoritative than the scriptures themselves. He also warns against confusing the biblical teaching of the priesthood of the believer. The priesthood of the believer essentially says that all of us have access to God. We can read the scriptures. We don't need a priest mediating between us to get the job done. Well, he warns against replacing that with the popehood of the believer, where each of us think that we're the pope, where we get to say whatever goes, and our word is as good as the Bible. Well, of course, the idea of the priesthood of the believer militates against pophood. period, but it definitely ought to militate against our own assignment of ourselves as the authoritative voice of the scriptures. We probably all do this more than we'd like to admit. We do this as individuals, but we also do this... As church communities, as local churches, or as denominations, where we start to privilege our denominational or local church interpretation of a text, and we look at other churches in denominations and suggest that they are unfaithful to God because they're reading the scriptures perhaps on one point differently than we are. We don't want to be that kind of church. Now, I am not advocating that we say any interpretation ever goes. What I'm advocating for is a kind of interpretive humility that says that we might be wrong about a particular interpretation of a text or the way we put a text into practice. Now, we sometimes glibly recognize this when we say, well, when we get to heaven, we'll figure out when we're, where we've been wrong on interpreting the Bible. But the reality is that I don't think God intends for us to wait to get to heaven to hear alternative interpretations of our preferred one. God doesn't want us to wait to get to heaven to benefit from the whole of the Christian reading of the scriptures. So as we read and interpret and apply the Bible, we need to do so as a community, as a local church community in small groups as part of this church, in community with other denominations around us, in community with people who are long dead, who are writing about the Bible. We should benefit from these people with a kind of interpretive humility that's willing to say, I might be wrong. As we interpret the Bible, as we move from being just a hearer to an understander into a doer, We need to interpret with these three guides, with a Christological guide, with a charity guide, and with a communal guide. As I said, this is not everything we could say about interpreting the Bible. There's a lot to say about biblical interpretation. And if you want to go down that road and, and read a book on it, I would recommend a little book by Doug Stewart and Gordon Fee called Reading the Bible for All It's Worth. It is a really, really good, simple, helpful guide for reading the Bible. Now, if you want to get more into the philosophical side about like how we can know anything and how literature works, which some of you may, I'd recommend to you a little book called Scripture as Communication by Janine K. Brown. And if any of you pick up these books and would like to meet regularly and talk through them, I would love nothing more to do that that would be my complete joy, because I think this is such an important and delightful uh, task that we have as Christian disciples. But we return to James's initial prescription, which is to not just be a hearer of the word, but to also be a doer of the word. I need to give one brief side comment here. I've I've been reading a book by a church historian, and he's tracing the development of Christianity over time. And he tracks a regular rhythm within Christian reading and interpretation and doing, where people initially discover the word, and they discover the ethic and example of Jesus, and they become people who live like Jesus, self-giving, loving other people, and usually it's unpopular. It doesn't fit the cultural way of behaving, So those people are marginalized and discriminated, and then over time, people realize there's people are attracted to this self-giving, loving way of being, and so even the unbelieving world starts to pick up on that, and over time, there becomes this unholy alliance between the church and unbelievers, where it's now popular to become a Christian and to embody Christian virtue, and in that alliance, that virtue becomes distorted and self-serving. Where there was right doctrine that led to right behavior, there becomes a desire to be approved and elevated in society. So what religious authorities often do then is reinterpret the scriptures to justify their change in behavior. I think we're all in danger of that, but when we track it in church history, the next thing that happens is that there will be a reformation pointing out these these doctrines, your interpretation is wrong. You're just doing it to justify your behavior. You're doing it to make the church rich, to give you positions of privilege and power and comfort. So there's a doctrinal reformation that brings some practice reformation, but then what happens is this right interpretation of doctrine becomes the unifying center, and it gets divorced from practice, and then the same thing happens. Where now it's not we're trying to justify our practice, but we're trying to solidify our interpretation so that every group becomes so sectarian that they push people out in some stages of church history, executing them in other phases of church history, just giving them the cold shoulder. And then there's such a digging in and defense of doctrine that they lose the guidelines of the Christological and communal and charity movements of interpretation. So then when you trace that, the next thing that happens is there rises up a generation of people who we might call counter-reformers who recognize they started to get the doctrine right, but in overemphasizing it, it took them to wrong practices, and now we need a recovery of the right practices. And I think that's where we are in American Christianity. We need a recovery of right practices in so many areas, and I think that's why James is so helpful for us. We do need right doctrine. But right doctrine is only right inasmuch as it promotes the love of God and love of others. That's what we need to be as a church. That's where we need to go in our interpretation of scriptures. And for some of us, we just simply have to repent before the Lord and other people for allowing our interpretation of scripture to cause us not to love as we should. That, that's probably where some of us need to be. But as we recognize that, we have the joy of moving forward like Jesus, loving in word and in action. We have this prescription to not only be hearers, but also doers. James augments this instruction with a parable. It explains why this ought to be the case. He contrasts two individuals, both of them looking in the mirror of the word, but they have different responses. He writes, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror, where he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer But a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. When we look at this parable, we can walk away with different interpretations of it. So let me give you the one that guided my understanding of this parable for a long time, but also is not very satisfactory to me. I I used to read this and think what James is describing is someone who goes in front of a mirror and they realize that they have issues— And then they leave without taking care of it. And then there's someone else who stands before the mirror and they realize they have issues and they take care of it before going away. You know, so by experience, we might say it's standing in front of a mirror and noticing you have spinach in your teeth and not doing something about it and walking away. That's a negative. The positive is pulling out the floss and getting it out of there. Well... That's not quite what James is emphasizing. I think it might be right for us to say the Bible is like a mirror that reveals our weaknesses and inadequacies. But if you notice, the emphasis that distinguishes these two onlookers is the matter of remembrance, of forgetfulness. So I think we need to understand the parable in a little bit of a different way. Instead of the word acting as a mirror that shows us our deficiencies— James is teaching us that the word operates as a mirror that reveals our true identities, and we ought to remember who we are when we leave our contemplation of the scriptures. So let me illustrate it in this way, because I had an experience in life that changed the way that this parable hits me. A few years ago, I entered into a season of Dome piece development, we might say, as I was navigating my follicle challenges of hair loss. And I was losing hair at an alarming rate. And one day, I saw a picture of myself uh, that captured uh, my melon in a particular way. And I realized that I had more balding spots than thick, luscious hair spots on my head. And I was facing the conundrum of what to do with my appearance, because it just looked bad. You know, we, we all might say that at times, but this genuinely looked looked bad. So after some research, a lot of self-contemplation and introspection, I decided I just need to embrace this thing. I need to grab the razor, I need to grow a beard, and I, and I just need to adopt a different look. Well, I did that. Uh, but during that time of transition, we might say, There were times in between the mirrors where I would forget what I now looked like. I forgot my new appearance. And I would look in the mirror, and it would be shocking to me what I looked like. It did not look like the me that I had known for 25 years. It was quite a different me. And then I'd go away, and I'd forget what manner of a person I was until I looked in the mirror again, and it shocked me. I think this is what James is getting at. He's already said in verses, verse 18, God gave you birth by the word of truth. You're a new person. You're a child of God. You have a new identity. So you navigate this life in the world in a different way. And we receive the implanted word that gives us life from the inside out. And we look into the mirror that reminds us of who we are now, that is the source of our identity, that shows us who we ought to be. And the failure in looking at the mirror is to walk away and forget who God is making us out to be now. It's looking at the mirror, not realizing that we're a beloved child of God, of a father who gives us good gifts, who calls us to his way, which is the way of love and peace and obedience, forgetting who we really are. And in our forgetting, we look around us, we look at the social imaginary of our society that imagines the good life and portrays what identities we ought to adopt and who we ought to value and what we ought to be like. It shows us people who have perfect bodies or lots of money, or who are really funny, or whatever the case might be, and it says, look at that person and become like them. Look at that and adopt that as your identity. Then we look in the mirror of the word, and we see we're a different kind of person, with different aims and desires and agendas, and we ought to walk away working out that new identity. That's what it means to walk away remembering and not forgetting. We don't forget who we are now. So I would encourage you, when you encounter the scriptures, encounter it as a mirror that reveals who you are as a new creature in Christ, as one of God's children. Don't primarily read this Bible as an instruction manual to help you figure out all of the exact problems that you're facing in your life. Don't read it as an antiquated book. Don't read it as a harsh taskmaster. But read it as a family record of your new identity in the family of God. So James instructs us with this prescription to be hearers and doers. He gives us a parable to explain what's going on when we encounter the word of God. And he ends it with a promise promise of a beatitude and a blessing. says so the one who remembers, who goes away remembering who they are and putting that identity into action, this person will be blessed in what he does. And we need to avoid misreading the text to say this person will be blessed in whatever he does and think that if we read the Bible enough that God will just give us anything we want. That would be misunderstanding both the Bible and our identity and what a blessing from God is. So we don't read the Bible as a magic toolbox to get us through life. Now, sometimes we, without realizing it, betray this misunderstanding of the Bible when we say something like, man, I had a bad day at work. I, you know, my computer wasn't working well and everything went bad. And I know it's just because I didn't do my devotions this morning or something like that. The Bible is not a shot of magic juice to make your day go well. That's not what's meant by being blessed in your doing. Instead, what's meant by being blessed in your doing of the word is you are living according to your true identity. You're not living as a schizophrenic. You don't have divided personality. You don't have divided interests. You're not the double-minded person, unstable in all their ways that James talks about at the beginning of the letter. You're a unified person complete, whole person, and you experience the flourishing that comes with living according to the new identity that you have in Christ. This is what Jesus gets at when he gives the beatitude blessings in Matthew 5, when he talks about um, those who are going to receive the kingdom. He pronounces a blessing on the poor in spirit, the ones who mourn, the humble, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the the peacemakers the persecuted that these are the people who are the blessed ones because they're living out their lives with the ethic of Jesus they're living according to the kingdom values pronounced by Christ it doesn't guarantee a cushy life but it does guarantee a life of flourishing and wholeness i think there are two primary bol- blessings that flow out of this the first is the blessing of belonging to the kingdom of God. That's what I've just been describing. Jesus articulates blessings on these individuals because theirs is the kingdom of God. You'll be blessed in your doing. You'll belong to God's kingdom. But in another image, there's a blessing of belonging to God's family. Those who do the word of God belong to God's family. Now, This may strike you as strange to hear. Doing the word brings me into God's How How does that work? Bear with me because we have to put some pieces together, but I think it will be rewarding at the end. Last week, I connected James' instructions here to the parable of the seed and the soil. So if you remember... Jesus gives this parable where the seed of the word is scattered on different kinds of soils. The path, the rocky ground, the good ground. And James builds on that to tell us to receive the seed of the word, receive the implanted word. While Jesus gave this parable during his pre-resurrection ministry. During this time, Jesus' siblings did not believe that Jesus was the fulfillment of Israel's scripture. They did not receive him as the Messiah. For them, the seed of Jesus' teaching fell on on rocky ground. It didn't take root. So John records in his gospel that not even Jesus' brothers believed in him, indicating that his siblings heard his teaching. They failed to do it. They didn't believe it. They didn't act on it. Well, the author of our letter, James, is traditionally understood as one of Jesus's brothers. Now, James doesn't identify himself as this way. He doesn't lean into that identity in the letter, but I think he hints at it in this section here. I think he hints at it because if you're reading the parable of the seed in the soils in Luke chapter 8, by the end of that chapter, when Jesus finishes giving this parable of the seed in the soils, he receives word from someone in the crowd that his mother and brothers want to talk to him. But they couldn't get to him because of the crowd listening to the parable of the seed and the soils. And Jesus says in front of everyone, my mother and my brothers are those who hear and do the word of God. And in that moment, he's connecting hearing and doing to receiving the seed in a good soil that produces fruit, Jesus welcomes all of those who listen to him and will choose to act upon his teaching into his family, identifying them as his brothers and his sisters and as his mother. But with that same inclusive word, he excludes his biological brothers because they fail to believe. They're not his brothers truly the echoes of that text in this portion of James, I think leads us to understand that James, even though he did not in that moment believe that Jesus was the Messiah, in his coming to believe, he gained a new relationship with Jesus where he was truly Jesus's brother in a way he never was prior to believe. Jesus did not count his biological brothers as his family. He elevated the bond of belief and obedience above the bond of biological relationship. And in that word, in that moment of separation, there was a moment of clarity that James eventually apparently came to understand because we're reading a letter written by that same person who now is giving us the same exact instruction. If you want to be in Jesus's family, don't just hear God's word, but do it. I think there's great hope in that realization that there was a biological brother of Jesus who rejected, who was a hearer and not a doer, that he became a doer and is now teaching us to be the same kind of person, to join him in that family. I would want to extend that welcome to all of you here as well. Whether you've identified as a Christian in the past or not, I think it does not matter because James's emphasis is not on whether or not at one time you received the word, but whether you're hearing and doing the word now. Because it's in that active participation that we actively participate in the family life of God, that we actively relate to Jesus, our older brother. I would say to you, regardless of whether or not you're a Christian, by self-identification, hear and do the word of God and know that there's a promise of blessing, that you'll be blessed in your doing. You will be added to the family of God as you come to savingly receive the word of truth, the gospel, and do it. It's a word of encouragement, particularly for those who look at their biological family and find disappointment. I think every single person on planet Earth feels that on one level or another at some time. No one has the perfect family. But many are touched with the hardship that sin brings into biological family relationships. Well, Jesus offers one better. He offers a relationship, a family relationship that can never be never be taken away, because he's the one who secures it, because His word is true and good but become part of Jesus' family. Be a hearer and a doer. So he gives us this prescription to be hearers and doers, this parable about identity and action and this promise of beatitude and blessing. How should we respond to this as a whole? We've tried to take some steps forward. There are many ways that we could respond. We don't have all day to talk about that. And every person is in unique situations, and the demands on Christ in your particular situation might not be the same as someone else in a different situation. What it looks like to be a doer of the word is not going to look the same for every one of us. So I want to emphasize instead the way that we interact with the word in our regular practices. Something that you can take with you today as you talk about the word, as you engage with it this week want to talk about a reading practice that Christians have adopted for a long time that I think serves as the foundation for virtually every other Bible study on planet Earth, every mode that they go about it. So you don't have to use these terminologies. I'm just giving you a more historic way of talking about it. But a reading practice called Lectio Divina, which is translated divine reading, and it's a process of engaging with the scriptures that I think leads us to do what James is instructing. Now, I don't know how to pronounce Latin, so I'm hoping you don't either. And I won't say anything in a way that would be too wrong. But I'll also talk about the English articulation of each phase of engaging with the scriptures. We begin with this phase of Lectio, of reading and studying. How can we hear the word if we never actually engage with the scriptures? We read it and we study it. I think that we probably overly prize individual God-and-I time readings of the Bible, and we undervalue communal readings of the Bible, whether that's with one other person or with a family or with a small group or with a larger group. Uh, I don't know that there's any virtue in saying, I read my Bible every day of the week, but I don't ever read with other people. I think we need both, but we need to read and study God's word utilizing various study tools that are available to us, recognizing that all of them are probably imperfect on some level. Uh, I think this idea that we need the whole of the church to grasp the whole of Christ is a good idea. So read widely, read broadly, benefit from others. But we read and we study the Bible. But we don't stop there. We move to meditatio, reflecting and meditating on the scriptures. In our age of instant everything, we feel like, well, I got the study done and that took some time, so that must be enough. No, we need to reflect on it. We need to reflect on what God is calling us to. We need to reflect on what it says, what it means, the significance for our daily life. We need to meditate on the words, seek the insights that the Holy Spirit gives to us. But we don't stop there. We move to oratio, to responding in prayer. We seek to listen to God speaking to us, and then we speak to God in prayer. We respond. We ask for help. We repent of sin that's identified. We ask for insight. We respond in prayer. But we don't stop there. I think this is often where I stop. But the reality is that our reading of the Bible is not so much just investigating an ancient artifact, but a dialogical engagement with the living God of the Bible. So we hear from him, we speak to him, and then we move to contemplation. We don't get the final word. We continue to seek to listen to God, to rest in his word, to contemplate the realities and the beauties and the goodness and the truth of Scripture. To think about what it looks like for our lives in conversation with God and with one another. And then we move to the final movement, actio, to respond in action. To put into practice that which we have understood and reflected on and appealed to the Lord about. We don't just hear, but we do. I'm not suggesting you need to write down this list and follow every one of these things precisely or in order or something. But I am trying to say that this is a good guideline for the way that we engage with the scriptures, where we don't just grab onto an intellectual fact, where we don't try to have the final word in a prayer, where we don't forget where what we've understood and who we've seen ourselves to be in light of the scriptures. But we go to act on it, to fundamentally act in love for God and love for one another. Will you pray with me that God makes us that kind of a church, kind of church that cares about the Bible, that delves into it deeply, that reads it Christologically, that reads it charitably and communally, so that we'll act in love for God and one another? Father, we confess that quite often we fail to adopt appropriate reading practices. We fail to be hearers and doers. We fail to delight in your word and to display your love and affection to others. We know that because of our new identities in Christ, that this is ultimately who we are, and that we'll find greater flourishing and contentment and satisfaction when we live and operate in this way. So would you allow us to get over the obstacles that keep us from this way of being in the world? Would you enable us in this path of discipleship? Would you transform us by your word? It's in Christ that we pray, amen.